from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Margaret Barner. Peggy's mom was involved with UNICEF and had instilled in Peggy the concept of helping others in need and the oneness of mankind at a very early age. Peggy also describes how she became a Baha'i and her experience being in an interracial marriage. I started the interview by asking Peggy where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I guess the growing up years were Santa Barbara in California. We had lived before that in Evanston, Illinois, and Cuba, New York, and Scottsdale, Arizona, before we moved to California when we were, I think, five years old. Yeah, five years old. So we went to school in Santa Barbara all the way through ninth grade, and then we moved from there up to Palo Alto in the Bay Area. We went to high school there. So I guess basically we grew up in California. My parents were great parents. Our father was an Episcopal priest. Our mother, she's an Episcopalian, but she was of Jewish heritage. She was the first Christian in her family. So I think, you know, our parents gave us a wonderful childhood. It sounds like religious life was centered around the church then, the Episcopal Church. Yes, a lot of it was. Our mother did a lot of things, like she was the county chairman for UNICEF, so she worked very hard in that. Parents really did a good job of teaching us the oneness of mankind through their work, whether it was our dad at the church. He was what they call a worker priest because he also had a regular job. He was a a systems programmer, not the kind they have nowadays. He belonged to some kind of think tank and made projections about the future and stuff like that. Interesting. So he was a scientist. What were your interests growing up? Mostly swimming, horseback riding. I loved the work that my mom was doing. She had these pictures of children from around the world, these big posters. I loved those pictures so much. I told my mom that when I grew up, I wanted to go to every country in the world and have a baby. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't really understand (laughs) the details of of all that. But yeah, we had had a great childhood. A lot of privileges. I didn't realize at the time how privileged we were. Later on, as we grew up and became adults, learned about the world of racism and uh, things like that. We found out how, what a privileged childhood we had had. Uh, our parents both were, worked in the civil rights movement and were very vocal about civil rights. Our parents had us out marching when we were teenagers. and they were, So they were very good examples for us. So what did you do after high school? After high school, I became a Baha'i. How did you run into the Baha'i faith? Let's see, my twin sister had gone away to college. She went back to Santa Barbara. We were up in Palo Alto, and she went back to Santa Barbara to go to college and met some Baha'is, and she became a Baha'i there. 
I was really worried about her. I went down to see if I could talk some sense into her. I thought, uh-oh, what's she doing now? So I met some Baha'is, and then she came home for Christmas break. Gosh, it was like a puzzle put together for the first time. It just made so much sense. You know, I thought I was going to save her from something, but she had it right. <laughs> so what were you thinking the Baha'i faith was that you were going to save her from? Well, Polly was always doing something crazy at that time. And I just thought it was going to be one more thing that she had done. And since it wasn't Christianity and I believed in Christ, I was afraid that she had joined some kind of sect mm. or just some kind of crazy group. I didn't know mm. well, anything about it. So it's right. easy to, to judge something when you don't know anything about it. You think you know how to judge it. But once I found out about it, I mean, it was so attractive to me. And at first I was afraid that it wasn't a true religion, and I certainly didn't want to do anything to turn my back on Christ. That's what I was afraid of. I was afraid that she had turned her back on Christ. But when I saw that they believed in Jesus as one of the manifestations of God, with a capital M, then I had to really find out for myself if that was true. And I finally came to the realization that if I didn't except Baha'u'llah, I'd be turning my back on Christ, because it would mean that I didn't recognize his second coming. Now, you said it solved a puzzle for you. Can you explain what you mean by that? Um, it just seemed like there were so many confusing things in the world about all these different groups, whether it was politically or spiritually or just all these different factions in the world. It didn't make any sense. Once I heard about the faith and started reading about it and studying it, everything fit together. It made so much... The, mainly the, the teaching of progressive revelation, where I finally understood that these different religions were not competing against each other, although we think they are in today's world. Mankind looks at these different religions and thinks, like politics, there are all these different philosophies or theologies or whatever, that they're just competing against each other. And when someone explained to me that it's not that they were competing, it was more like chapters in a book or grades in school. When you go to the first grade or when you go to kindergarten or whatever, you learn your numbers, you learn your letters, you, things like that, and then you go on to first grade and second grade and your teachers, they don't tell you, your first grade or your kindergarten teacher was wrong, forget everything she told you. They say, remember what your kindergarten teacher taught you. Now we're going to build. We're going to put those letters together and learn how to read. We're going to put those numbers together and learn how to do addition and subtraction and multiplication and division. So you build on what each prophet before them, or messenger of God, manifestation, whatever you want to call them, taught the people. The teachings of God have brought mankind throughout history, have brought them forward, you know, one civilization, one messenger at a time. And the teachers have brought the same spiritual teachings, but the social teachings differed. And so understanding that they all foretold a day when all the religions, the promised one of all religions would come and fulfill the prophecies of all these religions, well, it just made so much sense because 
as one person said to me, God is not in competition with himself. He promised mankind through Abraham that he would never leave mankind without guidance. And he hasn't. He's always sent us when the days were absolutely really dark and there was no way out. That's when God has sent a messenger to different parts of the world or to mankind to help bring them out of their terrible times and bring them a new civilization. That whole concept of progressive revelation just made so much sense to me. So all the puzzle pieces just fit together. First of all, my mother, having been from Jewish background, had told us about the, the things that had happened to her relatives during the war. We were horrified that people, human beings, would kill millions of other human beings just because of their religion. just made no sense at all. And our mother knew her cousins. As a child, she went to Europe frequently to visit her relatives in Austria and Czechoslovakia. She knew all her aunts and uncles and cousins over there. Then when the war broke out, they started getting letters describing what was going on, and mainly they were, at first they were saying, well, we hear terrible rumors, but it can't be true, and that kind of thing. And then as things got worse, well, they've moved us all into a ghetto, and they've taken all our jewelry, and we hear really horrible rumors, but it just can't be true. They need us to work, okay? That's what she remembers for sure, that one. And then the last letter that they got was, well, first, you know, we're going to try to escape, or we're almost to the border was the last one they got. We're almost to the border. They never heard from them again. Oh, dear. And she had one cousin that she had never met. She would never even knew he existed because his mother, who was her aunt, and she'd never met that aunt either, had passed for Gentile you know, and had married someone that was not Jewish. I guess, for some reason, the family decided not to talk about them anymore since they had passed and they were trying to protect them, I guess, from being discovered or whatever, I don't know. But apparently at some point, this cousin of hers was a member of the Nazi Junge, a member of the, the Nazi youth group. So he didn't even know he was half Jew, uh, Jewish Jeez. until his father put him on a plane father took him to a plane, and I don't know what happened to my aunt, I mean my mother's aunt. She doesn't know what happened to her, but her uncle put her cousin on the plane and said, I'm sending you to New York to live with your grandparents and your cousin. That was the first he ever heard that he was half Jewish. So he got to New York and lived with my mother's family for about a year, and then he shot himself. Oh my God. Because he couldn't deal with fact that he was half Jewish. That really, you know, made a big impression on me when I was a child when my mother used to tell me about that or when she told me about it. I just, that's all I could think about for a long time. It just really um, upset me. And then, you know, to see as we grew up, we saw the injustice that there was just in life towards African Americans, towards Mexican Americans. Towards Indians, and we saw the other parts of the of the world children suffering because our mother was the chairman of UNICEF, 
And I just couldn't understand why things were so unfair in the world. It just didn't make any sense that we would live such a privileged life and that other people didn't have the same privileges. It didn't make sense to me at all. So, as I said, when I heard about the faith and learned about that it was a teaching of God, that the oneness of mankind was a teaching of God and that mankind, you know, was suffering because we had turned away from God and were treating each other so badly. It just made just common sense. So it changed my life because I really dove in. (laughs) So this was your first year in college when this happened? Actually, I had taken, yeah, I had taken some time off from school. Mm -hmm. I was working, yeah, but it was my first year out out of high school. So did it at all change the direction in which your life was going once you became a Baha'i? Oh, absolutely, completely. I graduated from high school in 1966 and then became a Baha'i in July of 67. I wasn't doing drugs or anything, but I I had started drinking, which at that age people try different things. But for me it's probably a good thing that got nipped in the bud because later it turned out that our parents became alcoholic. And so there is a a tendency towards alcoholic that is hereditary. So it's a good thing I didn't (laughs) get into drinking too much. When did you notice that your parents were alcoholics? By the time we were in high school, our parents had become alcoholic, especially our mom. And that really was another thing that really devastated me particularly because I loved her so much and she was two different people. She was one person in the morning. She was herself. And then by the time we got home from school, she was somebody else, you know, and not somebody that I wanted to be around. So that was very difficult. You know, as I said, it's a a good thing I found the faith because I didn't go through the struggle of alcoholism because when I watch people who are alcoholics, I see that it's extremely difficult. I mean, I can't drink. Right now, I can't quit drinking coffee. (laughs) My my drugs of choice. And, you know, it's so hard for me to quit drinking coffee. And so I don't know how, you know, I'm very glad I never, that I quit drinking before it became a problem. So, But I think it just, more than even that, though, it just gave me a focus. It gave me something positive. But I was already a Christian, okay? I already loved God and loved Christ. But I didn't, for some reason, it hadn't given me a direction to go in. I was a member of a couple of different Christian youth groups. There was Episcopal Young Churchmen. There was a Young Life group uh, right down the street. But I don't know why. It just hadn't given me the direction I needed. So joining the faith opened up just a whole new world to me. I mean, it just was everything I was looking for in terms of identity as a human being and not just one little section of society or whatever. And it gave me a purpose, you know, to become a better person myself, to really look within and and try to really start living what I believed, you know, living the life, as well as to serve mankind and try to find... For instance, one of the things that I learned early in the faith was that, you know, our purpose is to serve mankind. Well, that was just 
wonderful to me. And I remember somewhere during the first few years, I read something where the Universal House of Justice, I think it was a letter to the youth in, at a conference during one of those early years, 68 or 69, that suggested three areas of service. If, if young people were looking, if they were asking, first of all, they should follow their own intuition, their own interests. But if they were asking for a way to serve mankind and what to study in college and things like that, the House of Justice suggested that they consider the three different fields which are very much of service to mankind, which include they were agriculture, medicine, and education. And I thought, oh. For the benefit of our listeners, the Universal House of Justice is our international governing council. Right. So, yeah, there had been a youth conference, and the youth had asked. The youth had written a letter to the Universal House of Justice and asked for advice about whether or not to go to college or to go out and find a, a service that they could, you know, go to another country and serve the people in the village in one way or another. And the Universal House of Justice gave some wonderful uh, advice and said that, you know, going to college would make you a better servant. You could serve the community, whatever community you live in, you could serve that community better if you had skills offer. Yeah, that's that's when I, I realized that, you know, that I wanted to think like that. I wanted to prepare myself for serving mankind in a way that would be productive. So I became a teacher and I married William Varner and we had five kids and now we have grandchildren, 12, 11 grandchildren. So. <laughs> And we've had some wonderful, wonderful experiences since I met William and we got married. We've lived in for a while in Burkina Faso in West Africa, but I had medical problems, um, so we ended up having to come home. We were only there seven months, but we were also went to the Maxwell International High School in Canada, which was a great experience, and back in Georgia. So when you became a Baha'i, it uh, redirected you to go back to school based on the guidance you were hearing from the Universal House of Justice? Yes, but actually what happened is I didn't go back to school because I then got, I met William and we got married and I started having babies. <laughs> and so um, I didn't go back to school until we had had five children. So by, the, by that time, I was really, really eager to get back into school. Yeah, and then I became a teacher. Mm -hmm. So it did. It was put off for a few years, but yeah, William. William really encouraged me to go back to school too. Meeting William Barner was absolutely next to becoming a Baha'i. Next to hearing about Baha'u'llah and becoming a Baha'i, you know, meeting William and getting married was next greatest blessing in my <laughs> life. <laughs> and how was it that you met William? Well, we actually met in Maryland. I was in Maryland um, serving the Baha'i community there. There had been a, a conference and needed helping people understand more about the faith, helping people, you know, starting study groups and things like that, children's classes. There were people that would come on the weekends to help us, and he was one of the people that came, and he was just so different from everybody else. I mean, he 
everybody that came to help was wonderful, but he really understood the meaning of service. And he really connected with the people. I just knew that was my husband. At the end of the first, let's see, he came on a Saturday morning. By the time he left Sunday evening, I knew that was my husband. and We were married two, two months later. Yeah, that was in 1971. We're still together. <laughs> Nowadays, interracial marriage is not that big a deal, but in 1971, in Maryland, it it was. There were <laughs> there were people who really, uh, well, there were people who said they were going to blow up the park. We got married in the park. You know, there were all kinds of people that I worked with told me, you know, that I, I should, shouldn't get married, that I was, you know, that it didn't make any sense, and said all kinds of crazy things, and then said, you know, they told me, oh, well, the thing that white people used to say back then was, it's against the Bible, that's what they used to say, <laughs> which, of course, is not against the Bible. Then people would tell us, well, don't have any children, because it's not fair to the children. Of course, we had five children. <laughs> yeah, I never could really understand that logic. <laughs> well, it's not logical. What was your parents' reaction to you marrying William? Oh, it was fine with them. Because they were already socially fun. conscious people. Yeah, they were. Yeah. They really were. They had deliberately taught us the oneness of mankind. They said they took us to marches, you know, for civil rights marches and things like that when we were teenagers. Took us to see Dr. King. As a matter of fact, when we were, let me see, I forget what grade we were. When we were pretty young, elementary school, we had a foster brother who was an exchange student from Nigeria. As a matter of fact, that's a, there are several stories about that. He uh, was a young man who was going to college, and, you know, there was a group. There were AFS students, international students. I think American Field Service, something like that, had arranged. I think there were about 20 young men who had come to go to college and were living with different families. We went to you know, we were members of a country club, and I'll, I'll never forget. We went to the Coral Casino in Santa Barbara, which we had belonged to for years, and our brother jumped, you know, dove into the pool, and everybody everybody got out. Oh, my God. And my parents, yeah, we didn't, we were young. We didn't know what the deal was. And uh, my parents did, though. And they just laughed and laughed, and and. I said, oh, look, Tunji has the whole pool to himself. But he came over, saying, you know, laughing, saying, what is it? What is it? My parents just laughed and laughed. They never, would tell, they never told us what it was. They just laughed. They said, go get your things. So we went and got our things, and we walked out. My parents were laughing. We laughed all the way home. Wow. We didn't know why we were laughing. I mean, we were just kids. We had no idea why we were laughing. But that's the way my parents dealt with it. Mm. And... They said, you know, later, when we asked, well, can we go back, can we go swimming? They said, well, we'll go to the beach, you know, but we're not going back to the casino. And we never did. We never went back. Even, you know, after Tunji left, you know, we never went back. And they said, we're not, we're not going back. And we really and truly never, until we were adults and thought back about that, we never really realized what had happened. I just remember also there was another time when it was Christmas time and a whole bunch of the Nigerian guys ended up staying with us because their host families had relatives coming and wouldn't approve. Oh, so they ended up with us. Jeez. 
Jeez. during Christmas break. Because during, see, during the school year, they actually lived in the dorms at the colleges. They only came home on weekends and vacations. Okay. But at Christmas, when they were going to, you know, a lot of the families were going to have relatives there. The relatives didn't approve, so we ended up with about six of them at our house, which was fine with us. So, Peggy, I was going to ask you what your parents' reaction was to you you and your sister becoming Baha'is. Oh, that was not good. Our dad said we were going straight to hell. Um, so that was he was pretty upset about it, which really shocked us because dad had taught us. Oh, as a matter of fact, we remember when every summer we used to go to EYC summer camp, which was EYC is Episcopal Young Churchman, and there was a there was a youth camp, different age, pre youth camp. There was a family camp, so we would end up going for like two, three weeks every summer. And one summer, we remember at lunch or dinner, anyway, we were in the cafeteria, and which was usually a pretty noisy place, and we remember all of a sudden it got really quiet because the priests who were sitting at one table together were arguing. And that was, that never happened. You never heard priests arguing, right? We never did. So things got quiet, and everybody was listening. And the other priests were saying that unless you were a Christian who believed in Christ and you had been baptized, you were going to hell. And my dad was saying, if you're a Muslim and you believe that there's only one God and you follow the teachings of Muhammad to the best of your ability, you're going to heaven. If you're a Buddhist and you believe there's only one God, and you follow the teachings of Buddha to the best of your ability, you're going to heaven. And on like that. And that was something that really, of course, impressed us. I mean, I had never really had any philosophical discussions with our dad, but that just, the fact that the other priests thought that any, everybody in the world except Christians was going to hell didn't make any sense to me. And what my dad said made perfect sense, but I'd never heard it before, but it did make perfect sense. So when Polly became a Baha'i and was so excited and, you know, to, and what, called home to tell Dad, and he got angry, well, that shocked us. You know, we just, we just didn't understand, you know, why he would teach us that basically, the oneness of religion. And then, you know, she was wanting to let him know about it. You know, guess what? There's a religion that teaches what you taught us, right? Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, uh, I said, I know about that. I know about the Baha'i faith. And you're, you know, that's you're going straight to hell. Wow. So, yeah, that was a shock. It really was, because we've wondered about that the rest of our lives, and, you know, all I can say is that we know he went to seminary at Seabury Western, which is seven blocks from the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois. So we feel like he must have, my dad was a very, you know, he was a real thinker. So I'm sure his, he must have heard about it and read about it and knew something about it. 
obviously he knew something about it because I don't know where else he would have gotten those ideas that he taught us. But when it came to actually becoming Baha'is, well, obviously he never did. And then when we became Baha'is, he was furious. So I don't understand, really, so how he could teach us and then, and then not understand the faith. So it was never worked out, the, the one message he was giving and then his reaction to you and Polly? Right. It just, that was very confusing to us. All four of his kids became behind. Oh, really? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, all four of us became behind. And what about your mom? Well, she was less condemning of it. She definitely, you know, never became a Baha'i in this world. You know, that they were on their own path, and it really didn't matter if they became Baha'is or not in this world, that everything they taught us was true, Mm. and even, you know, more than they had realized. And they were great parents in so many ways. It's important just to be thankful for the good things and, and just pray for them and know that they would be fine. Did your father ever warm up to the Baha'i faith at all? Gosh, you know, it's so interesting because as he, after, as they got older and as, you know, then mom died and dad moved out here uh, to Georgia from uh, California, yes, he, because he loved to visit us and would come for, you know, dinner on the weekends or to spend the day or the whatever, the weekend, and then he lived here with us for a while after when he got ill and stuff, but even before he got ill. Mm-hmm. And he never said anything negative. He never got up and walked out or anything like that. He just he ended up being very, very tolerant and accepting of our way of life. What happened when you wanted to marry William? And I assume and both of you are Baha'is. Mm-hmm. What was his reaction to you? Marrying a Baha'i. Who, my dad's reaction? Yeah. Oh, that was not a problem, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, because by that time, my twin sister had already married a Baha'i. My dad had this funny way of, he said he wasn't, he was like, my, he said, you don't need to ask me for permission. And we said, well, yes, we do. <laughs> and he said, no, you don't. And it was like this back and forth thing. For a while, and he resented going along, uh, you know, doing something that the faith required. He didn't want to be in that position. What he did for each one of us was to write a paper saying, my child, so-and-so, is however old, is it, you know, an adult or whatever, and can marry whoever she wishes. He wouldn't come right out and say, you know, I give permission for my daughter to marry so-and-so. You know, he just said, my daughter is adult and can marry whoever she wants. And then, of course, he would also tell us that, you know, he, he liked the person or whatever like that, but he wouldn't write that down. So just for the benefit of the folks listening, Peggy, can you explain this law that you're referring to, this Baha'i law regarding getting consent consent and what the purpose of that would be? Sure. 
The law of consent is that in marriage, no matter what your age, you have to have consent, you know, the agreement of your parents, of all living parents, to get married. And the purpose of this is to build unity within the family and to help young people have some respect and appreciation in their hearts for their parents. And it's a very good law, even though it was it is shocking for many Westerners when we first hear about it because we're so unlike that in the United States. But it is really in most of the world it's very traditional to get your parents' consent before marrying. And it's a very wise thing to do. In the United States, so many of you think that, you know, well, I can do what I want to do. It doesn't matter. You know, when I'm 18, I do, I'm grown, I can do what I want, which is very foolish and gets us into a lot of problems. The unity of the family, you know, having the parents' blessings is very important and, and really helps in the unity of the family. And did you see that when you, yeah. when you sought permission did you see that? Um, well, I guess I did, but I've seen it more and more as I've, mm. you know, got through the years. At the time, it was difficult, but I knew my parents would consent. That wasn't a problem for us. But, I, you know, I, I know that there are other people who have had difficulty getting consent or have not gotten consent and then later been very glad they didn't get consent because they realized later that their parents had a reason mm. to not give consent and that they were better off not marrying the person they had wanted. So, you know, I've seen that it's... it's, And also I've seen that throughout the world, there are many, many parts of the world... I mean, this law is for all of mankind, not just Americans, right? This is for all of mankind. And there are many places in the world where marriages are arranged, that that the young people getting married have no say in it. Well, this law says that it must be the the people getting married, it must be their choice. They must find someone that they want to marry. You know, so it cannot... Arranged marriages are forbidden. So really, you know, this is a unifying law in many ways because it takes the, the extremes of arranged marriage and just marrying whoever you feel like. It, it takes those extremes away, and just says that the young people must find, or the people who are being married, uh, must find someone that is pleasing to them. That's that's the words that are used, you know, that they find someone that's pleasing to them. They find someone that they want to marry, that they are attracted to, and then they ask permission. And then the parents can either agree to the marriage or not agree to the marriage, or, or think about it for a while, or whatever, so... I see that it really has a wonderful effect on a wonderful effect on society because it it affects different societies in different ways, but it brings them all to a, a standard, which is family unity. Peggy, at what point did you all decide you were going to go to Africa to serve the Baha'i faith, and what were the circumstances that directed you in that way? Okay, I think it was it was 1979 that we went there. The Baha'i Faith has, as you know, has plans that are given to us by the Universal House of Justice that have certain goals 
in different areas of the world. There was a plan that wanted uh, pioneers to go and serve in different countries around the world. And in 1978, there was a call saying, you know, this was the last year of the plan and they needed some people to go to Burkina Faso to start to serve the community there and to help start some education and some schools. They called them tutorial schools because all the schools in Burkina Faso were run either like by the Catholic Church or by the, they were called Quranic schools by the Muslims. Or there was a Protestant, there were Protestant schools. So there weren't any schools that were just open to everyone. So that's what we wanted to do. Is, well, there, there was a call, you know, saying these different countries need these different people who can help in these different ways. Okay. I remember getting a letter from National just because we had volunteered, we had put our names down to serve internationally. So we had wanted to go to Central or South America. That had been our goal. Uh, but they, we got a letter saying, would you go to Burkina Faso? I just said, you know, yes, where's that? <laughs> <laughs> and and um, they said it was in Africa. And I said, oh, wow, how exciting. So that's what happened. We ended up going there. But um, as I said, I got malaria and jaundice at the same time, and I was pregnant at the same time. Oh, my and, goodness. So, yeah, the House of Justice sent us home when they found out about that. They mm. said, take her home. <laughs> because the, um, you know, the standard of medical care mm-hmm. at the time in 1979 in Burkina Faso was not good. The doctors told me, you know, anything could happen. We can't guarantee if you need blood. Because the ba- my baby, the last baby, had been 11 pounds. And, I, and when I'm pregnant, I'm diabetic. So they said, if you need a blood transfusion or if you need insulin, we can't guarantee how long the blood or the insulin's been sitting on the dock in Abidjan before it came here by train and what temperature it's been at. We can't, we can't guarantee any of that. They said, you need to leave. You need to go home. <laughs> I mean, that's what the doctors in Burkina Faso told me. So. Home right. to the Universal House of Justice. We were trying to figure out what to do, but they said, you know, that we should protect my health and go home. But we did. It was very, oh, it was so hard to leave. We really wanted to stay there long term. We wanted to raise our children there. We wanted to serve the community there. But obviously, it was not going to Came home. Now, where did you and William settle after you get got married? In Georgia. Yeah, oh, well, actually, first we did live in Maryland. We lived in Maryland for maybe a year or two, I can't remember. Then we, yeah, then we spent maybe two months in Florida trying to find, trying to get started there, and then we just came on back to Atlanta, yeah. which is where William's family is. So it's just a wonderful big family and been home ever since, you know, except yeah. for, you know, going to Burkina Faso and to Canada, but it's home base. When did you go to the Maxwell International School? Let me see. I think we went in 1990 because I think that's right. Because I think the first graduating class was 91. Either that we went in 91 and the first graduating class was 92 because our daughter, Badgie, was a member of that first graduating class. So we were there for six years. What did you and William do there? We were dorm parents. 
and that was a really interesting experience. We had 42 sons our first year in the dorm. We were in a male dorm, a boys' dorm. Well, any parent knows with teenagers, there's always there's always something going on. They always need some guidance in some way. And when you get a dorm full of boys who are from all different corners of the earth, many different cultures, speak many different languages, and have many different various understandings of what courtesy is, and they're stuck four in a room, um, you have challenges. Believing in the oneness of mankind is great, but when you're in a dorm room with three other guys and you don't understand, you know, when you have different understandings of personal space and things like that, they often, you know, would come running into our apartment saying, I have to go home, I have to leave, and they won't, you know... (laughs) <laughs> and they, you know, so and so is. I, well, first it took a long time to get them to tell you what the problem was, and when they when they would tell you what the problem was, it was just some minor miscommunication. So we would have to bring the other person or persons in and and just have consultation, teach them how to express themselves and try to understand each other and work things out. And it's always worked out. You know, there was always <laughs> it, it always helped them to understand each other better and learn to consult. It was a great experience, and we also taught uh, what they called at the school personal development or spiritual development classes. They were always different things, like uh, oh, life after death, or understanding racism, or diversity, or, I mean, there were many, you know, or just different things, whatever the kids wanted to learn or whatever we wanted to teach. Those were an important part of Maxwell. Of course, there were the the regular BC Ministry of Education of British Columbia had required courses that, you know, the teachers taught, but those of us that were on the residential staff taught the personal development and the spiritual development classes. And they were an important part of the school. And how long were you at the school? Six years. What was the reason you moved on? Well, our children had graduated, our own children, and we were starting to have grandchildren down here in Atlanta, so Mm. it was just time to come back. It was difficult to leave. Uh, Maxwell, because it was a wonderful experience for us. But, you know, we we just, our kids were all graduating and coming back here. (laughs) So what are you doing now, Peggy? I teach at the Putnam County High School in uh, the county just north of where we are. I teach French and Spanish and English for speakers of other languages, ESL. How would you say the Baha'i faith informs how you teach? Well, that's really a great question. You know, we, we were told in the writings that each person is like a mind with inestimable... Uh, I mean, there in each mind there are gems of inestimable value, and that the purpose of education is to uncover those gems, is to help people uncover those gems within their minds. So 
I don't look at teaching as if, you know, I have everything and I'm supposed to just, you know, pour it into these little kids. I mean, they're not little, they're teenagers, but I don't, it's not my purpose to just lecture them and tell them, you know, everything they need to know. It's, I've got to help them discover the gems that that are within them, you know, and so that's really fun. Because the kids, you know, there are some that just absolutely love language, that just really excel at French or Spanish. And then there are others, you know, who don't. And I tell them, that's okay. No problem, you know. And I, and I, I will see in them other attributes. And I, I love to, you know, just admire those attributes that I see in them, whatever they are. You know, and I encourage them, you know, if, If you love science, that's awesome. You know, that's really good. Whatever it is that you enjoy doing, use that. Develop that. Find a way of of using that in your life. And and I always tell them, you know, I'm trying to do my best as a teacher, and I hope you'll try to do your best as a student. But don't think that, you know, I, I want you to know that I don't think French and Spanish are the most important things in the world. It's just a tool to be able to communicate with other people. And it's a it's sort of like foreign languages are a window that can help you see into other cultures. So it's exciting and it's fun to learn about other people. And to me it's 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 more that it, a way of finding out about other parts of the world. It's not all grammar and that kind of conjugating verbs, you know, that's not, to me, the most important thing in the world. You know, the most important thing is to learn to communicate with other people and learn something about other people. I think that helps me stay focused on what's most important as a teacher. It's not my subject, but the kids themselves and what their interests are and what their helping them just develop as world citizens. So, Peggy, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Margaret Barner, a Baha'i and school teacher. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
praise the blessedness of him that hath drawn nigh unto it and heard its roaring. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.